Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of Effie Church, and this is our podcast. So we just came off an incredible church camp sermon series, right? How awesome was church camp 2019? I think it was the best church camp we've had yet. But thank you to everyone who served and gave and painted things and volunteered your time for church camp. It was incredible. But so last week, we talked about coming off the mountain, though, right? We've been spending all of this time over the past month on the mountain, hearing from God, running to him, and having these intense moments of presence with him where he just changes everything, right? Our perspectives, our, our thought procedures, the things that we have built in our head, God changes on the mountain. He inspires us. He motivates us. But we have to do something with that motivation, to do something with what happens on the mountain. We're required to come off the mountain. Billy Graham said, mountaintops are for views and inspiration, but fruit is grown in the valleys. Not only are new things done for us in us, in the valleys. We have the battles, and we've, we've gone through seasons of, of valley moments, too, as a church, where we're talking about the battles that we go through and how you have to fight through life, but it's so much easier with God on your side. Not only does he do new things in us in the valleys, but he plants new seeds in the valleys as well. We have to come down off the mountain. And at Freedom Valley, Maybe at all churches. I'm starting to believe it's definitely at all churches across the board that this is more of a spiritual condition of the human heart than a a particular diagnosis of us here and now. I think actually I didn't quite say this well enough last night, but I'm, I'm not calling anyone out in this sermon, okay? If you feel like a big spotlight is on you, I promise you, It's not. In fact, the two types of couch potatoes that I'm going to describe today are extremes, okay? They're they're extreme versions of the spectrum. Not necessarily any one of us, but how we can get if we allow things to continue to be too unhealthy in our spiritual walk, okay? And, And there's two types of couch potatoes I want to talk about. The first one loves God. They love learning. They'll show up to services with a Bible and notebook, and they'll set up all their highlighters and their pens, and they'll, they'll pour themselves into getting everything that they can. They're learners, and they love learning so much they won't sacrifice even a week, a month, or one service a weekend to serve the church that's feeding them so well. They won't go in the back and hold babies. They won't make coffee because they don't want to miss what's going on in here, right? They want to learn so much they won't sacrifice even a moment to serve others. That's what I've been calling the eater, right? In in a dining room table context, it's the person who shows up at the dinner table, shovels food in their mouth, sits down, eats the entire time, won't sacrifice even a minute of eating to get up and get a plate for somebody else. They don't know how to serve people. They just want to consume. It's it's the consumer that just gorges themselves, eating everything they can find until it's not even nutritional anymore. 
right? There's a point that the threshold we all cross from time to time where what we're eating isn't giving us nutritional value anymore. In fact, it's becoming harmful, right? It's not nutritional. It's detrimental to our overall health. I believe we can get there spiritually as well. And this is, this is honestly the more obvious couch potato. Person who wants to sit in a seat and listen but not get up and do something. It, it's the obvious couch potato. But I believe there's another type of couch potato too, one that's a little less obvious. And these people, again, this is the extreme. This is taken to an unhealthy level, but it's who I call the waiter. They love people. They love serving. They love doing things. And I think that the only way to interact with the church and with God's people is to serve it. And so they show up every time there is a table to set up, a counter to sit behind, a button to push. They'll, they'll serve their hearts out. They love serving so much. They won't sacrifice even a minute of it to sit and receive the word, to sit and worship their hearts out on the front row. They can't possibly, they're too necessary everywhere else. They have to do it all, be it all. They're the waiter. In the dining room table context, they're the ones who are serving everyone else to the point that they starve themselves because they won't sit down and eat for themselves. Neither extreme are particularly useful after a certain amount of time. The eater consumes everything, no help to anyone else. And the waiter serves themselves to death until they're no help to anyone else. They starve themselves and waste away until they become useless. Now, as I started to think about this concept, I realized Jesus actually directly addresses it in Mark 12. And he talks about two of the greatest commandments. But in this context, you know, this is actually a pretty common passage. We read it a lot in the church. And so if you've been around the church for a while, you're going to sort of complete my sentences before I'm even done. You're sort of going to tune the rest out because you feel like you've got this, right? You've heard this passage a few times. And so this week, I actually went and studied it in the Passion Translation. We usually read the NLT around here. But in the Passion Translation, it's a fairly new translation. The whole Bible isn't even in it yet. I don't know if it's ever going to be. But it just helps me think about passages like these in a brand new way. And so we're going to read it in the Passion Translation today. Mark 12, verse 28. Now, a certain religious scholar overheard them debating. When he saw how beautifully Jesus answered all of their questions, he posed one of his own and asked him, Teacher, which commandment is the greatest of all? Jesus answered him, The most important of all the commandments is this, The Lord Yahweh our God is one. You are to love the Lord Yahweh your God with every passion of your heart, with all the energy of your being, with every thought that is within you, and with all your strength. Let me just read that again, because I want you to feel the intensity of this. These are not words Jesus just threw out, right? He wasn't just off the cuff saying it. There was some thought behind this, and there's some intensity behind the way that he replies. Love the Lord Yahweh your God with every passion of your heart, with all the energy of your being, with every thought that is within you, and with all your strength. 
This is the great and supreme commandment. And the second is this. You must love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. You will never find a greater commandment than these. The religious scholar replied, yes, that's true, teacher. You spoke beautifully when you said that God is one and there's no one else besides him. And there's something more important to God than all the sacrifices and burnt offerings. It's the commandment to constantly love God with every passion of your heart, with your every thought, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor in the same way as you love yourself. When Jesus noticed how thoughtfully and sincerely the man answered, he said to him, you're not far from the reality of God's kingdom realm. After that, no one dared to question him again. You're not far from the reality of God's kingdom realm. I've been thinking about that phrase all week. You're not far from the reality of God's kingdom realm. Because I think oftentimes as Christians, we believe that God's kingdom realm is something far away, something distant, something untouchable. It's something that's going to happen in eternity. It's, it's not here and now. We pray for God's kingdom to come and come quickly, but it's not happening now. We think that we just have to bide our time in this awful, terrible world, just get through it, muddle through the best that we can. Oh, I'm here, you know, not good. I'm just here. (laughs) Instead of understanding that God's kingdom realm can come here today, that it is close, it's at hand Jesus teaches this almost obsessively. He tries to change our perspective to see that it's here and now, not far away and distant in the future. And when he sees how this man thoughtfully, carefully thinks about it, puts thought into his answer, he says, you're close. You're very close. I love how Jesus consistently strips away the religion. He takes the religious pieces off of this relationship thing between us. But that's not to say that it's meant to be easy or that there's no work involved. It's not supposed to mean that we're to do nothing. We're supposed to do nothing without heart behind it. This love thing, loving God, is meant to consume you. It's meant to take every passion of your heart, all the energy of your being, every thought that is within you, and all your strength. It doesn't say some passion. It's, it's a passion of the many passions in your life. It doesn't say some of your energy just until you're tired. You don't want to do it anymore. It doesn't say some thoughts should be directed toward God or about him. Every thought, right? All your strength. It's meant to consume you. Meaning that the eater, remember two types of couch potatoes, the one that's consuming everything, the one that's eating and taking in all of the things about God so much so that they can't sacrifice time to go serve someone, it means that they're not entirely wrong, just incomplete. It's meant to consume you. You're meant to want it more than anything else in life. But there's another piece that you're missing when that's all you're doing. It's the people component to our faith. They've always been meant to go hand in hand. In fact, I'm not sure that you can become a mature Christian. I'm I'm definitely not sure that you can stay a mature Christian without finding some outlet for your faith. Some way 
somewhere, someone to pour into. We're meant to come into this place, corporate worship, to hear the word and get filled up so much that we're overflowing onto the people around us. We give it away. We unload it onto other people, the love, the joy, the peace, the passion that we've experienced. So much unloading that we have to come back to get filled up again. We go out and unload it onto people, and we have to come back and get filled up again in and out, up the mountain, off the mountain. It's a cycle. This part, though, the loving God part, is meant to sustain you when the next part fails you. I talk about church all day, every day. I love organizing church and building systems to get people connected and connecting people to each other, introducing people to each other, watching people find friendship and family within the church. It's, it's my favorite thing, but we talk a lot about how magical home groups are, right, and the connections that are built and how getting together in small groups helps keep you connected to the church. It's all true, but I worry sometimes that we go overboard on that. We make our only connection points people because people fail. Churches fail because people fail. It's the loving God part that's meant to be over everything else. We should be so connected to God. It doesn't matter when people fail us. We're just going to keep loving them anyway. Keep going back to God. Loving people anyway. Keep going back to God. Loving God is meant to consume you, and it's meant to connect you to the church because God never fails. He is love. He doesn't have love or give love sometimes. He is love. It's who he is. He never fails. And I think it was interesting that Jesus could have stopped here. The man only asked for the greatest commandment, one. That There's only one that can be the greatest, right? He was asking for one commandment. What is the greatest, the best commandment? But Jesus, he is perfect, right? His answers are perfect. He is fully God and fully man. And so when he answers... He gives a complete answer, a whole answer. Nothing can be added to it or taken from it to make it more perfect. It is perfect because that's who he is. So I think if Jesus had only given one commandment, it would have been incomplete. That one greatest commandment is incomplete without the second. They must go hand in hand because the kingdom of God isn't this or that. It's this and that. It's both together, hand in hand. We're building well-rounded disciples here, not unhealthy extremes of one or the other. It's both. It's all of it. It's this and that. And so he goes on to say the second commandment. Love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. Love the people around you, people you interact with, the people that live near you, the people you Work with your family, your friends, the people close to you. Love your neighbor. There's some debate sometimes about who is your neighbor, right? In fact, there's a scholar at one point throughout the Gospels that wants to trick Jesus with this question. Who is my neighbor? It's everyone. It's all of us. It's anyone you come across. Loving your neighbor is all-consuming as well. (laughs) There is no one we get to leave out 
of that equation. In fact, even the people who you think aren't believers, the people who don't have the same value system as you, you still love them. don't have to trust them necessarily. They don't behave in the same way. They don't live by the same set of standards, but it doesn't mean you don't love them. Love them, period. There's also some debate about, well, well, if I have low self-esteem and I don't love myself, what what if I don't love myself? How do I love other people? You probably do more than you think you do. You might have a problem with your hair, how your body is right now, but, but you clean yourself, you protect yourself, right? You, you feed yourself, you, you try to protect public opinion about yourself, and I bet when you make mistakes, you hope that people will overlook them, right? You try to excuse your own bad behavior away. Well, you got to understand what I was trying to do. My intentions were good, right? This is how we're meant to love other people, as we love ourselves, we build them up. We make them look good. We, we help them, protect them, feed them, clothe them when there is a need. This is how we take care of each other, as we would ourselves. And it's both loving God and loving people. It's both. One should feed the other. And yet, the two types of couch potatoes approach these differently. Some of us are more mm, physical. We like to do things with our hands. We want to jump in and get the job done. And we forget that we should also be feeding ourselves. We're couch potatoes, not physically, but spiritually. In fact, I I struggled a little bit with this series and the title because I, I don't want you to think that workaholism is the opposite of a couch potato. It's not. In fact, I want to avoid both extremes here because I think workaholism is just a a version of spiritual laziness. It's couch potato in another way. It's not disciplining yourself to get the rest, the fun that your soul needs, so you end up burning out like Jesus. It's both. We cannot afford to be couch potatoes spiritually, and we cannot afford to be couch potatoes physically. It's both. You know, I often think that I just have to work harder. I tend to be, just for a frame of reference, I tend to gravitate toward one or the other. I tend to be the waiter sometimes, and sometimes I'm the learner. I think we all do from time to time in our spiritual walk. We lean towards one or the other. But my personality, we make fun of me around here sometimes because I tend to lean more toward the waiter. I like to do things. I want to be busy. I think that if I just work harder, the church will be better. If I just do all of the things, if I just collect all the jobs, I'll make sure that they're all done right, and it'll all be better if I just do more, right? If I could just have more hours in the day, everything would be better. And yet God, in his never-ending wisdom, will sometimes say, Candace, stop. Actually, it would be better if you stopped, not if you worked harder. Rest, relax in me. The most recent example of this happening was, I think, two prayer nights ago afterward. Jason came up to me and he was like, I think God's calling me to a fast. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast entertainment. Like, no YouTube, no Netflix, no whatever. I'm just going gonna, gonna to fast all of that. I'm going to give that time to God. And I said, oh, that's, 
that sounds good. I haven't done a fast in a while. I'm going to join you in that. And I, I went home and I prayed about it. And I came back a day or two later and I said, Jay, I, uh, I know I said I'd do this fast with you, but I feel like God said no. Does God say no to fasts? <laughs> like, is the, if I want to, like, pray more, if I want to do more spiritually, does God say no to that sometimes? Like, I was so confused. And I kept praying about it. I said, God, why would you tell me to not fast? That seems like not your character. Right? And God said, and I love how God teaches us who he is as much as what we should do. He said, I know what's coming for you better than you know yourself. And you're about to enter into a season where you're going to be busy, real busy. And it might end up being the same result in that you're not going to be watching much Netflix and YouTube, right? But you won't have to force yourself to fast it because you have a busy season coming. And honestly, I I really felt like God said, on the days when you have off, you should be watching TV. Get your mind out of church for a while. The church will be better off. You'll be better off. Distract yourself. Rest. Have fun. Do something you enjoy. Right? It might end up, you don't, you don't get much TV watching, but it won't be because you're fasting. You're entering into a season that I know more about than you do. Trust me. Okay, God. I won't fast. I'll trust you. And honest to goodness, the past two months have probably been the busiest I've ever been in my life. And if I had fasted, I would have felt like a failure. I would have beat myself up. It would have driven me away from God because I would have felt ashamed, right? And he had better plans for me than I have for myself. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And when he says to start doing something, I better be obedient. But when it says to stop doing something, I better be obedient to that too. In fact, one of the sermons that I hope to be able to preach during this series is when to stop praying. There's a couple times in the word when God says, why are you standing here praying? Get to work. Why are you standing here crying out to me? You have a job to do. Why are you standing here looking at the Red Sea? I told you to cross it, right? Why are you standing here praying? Get to work. Sometimes God tells us to rest, and sometimes he tells us to get to work, and we have to be able to hear both because he knows better. I was... The first time Aaron was ever in the hospital, last July, I remember sleeping on the floor in his hospital room. He was out cold, and I remember just tears streaming down my face like, God, I don't have energy. I, I know that I should be a prayer warrior right now, right? I should be up pacing around this room, anointing stuff with oil and speaking into, like, the, I should be doing those things. I'm just done. Like, there is nothing left. I don't know what you want me to do here. What, what, am, am I a failure as a Christian, as a Bible-thumping, believing wife, if I don't get up and do those things right now? And I remember God just whispering to me, go to sleep. I got this. It's not all on you. You don't have to do more and be better and try harder. Just listen to my voice. Lay down and sleep. There are so many people praying for your husband right now. I don't need that from you. What I need from you is to rest so you can get up and take good care of him tomorrow. Rest. I 
don't think I've ever slept as good as I did that night when I gave it to God. Realized I don't have to do everything. I just have to listen to his voice. Loving God and loving people. That's how we become a well-rounded disciple. That's how we become close to the kingdom of God. Passionate about both. Being a learner and a servant. An eater and a waiter. They have to flow into each other. We're going to burn ourselves out in one way or another. I read 1 Corinthians 13 this week again. I was actually preparing for a wedding, right? 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. It's love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy or boast or proud. It isn't rude or or self-seeking. It doesn't easily anger. It keeps no record of wrongs. Like most of us, if we've been around church for a while, we probably know most of those phrases. We can complete those sentences before I do, right? You're already auto-completing in your mind. But I read it this week in the Passion Translation, again, because I was in it, and it it helped me see this in a brand new way. In fact, I'm going to read it for you today, but before I do, and usually I give you the scripture and then I unpack it, but in this case, I'm going to do the opposite, because I want you to hear a few things as I read through this. Love takes work. The Aramaic word for love is huba. Everybody say huba because it's a weird word, huba. And it is a homonym that also means to set on fire. It's difficult to express in the English language some Aramaic concepts because some homonyms in Aramaic can mean both things together. We think of a homonym as like he left or turn left, and they don't mean the same thing, although it's the same word, right? But in Aramaic, they can tend to mean the same thing. And so huba you could say it is a burning love, a fiery love. It comes from the inner depths of the heart as an eternal energy, an active power of bonding hearts and lives in secure relationships. The Greek word that's used in 1 Corinthians 13 is agape, which describes the highest form of love. It's the love God has for his people. It's an intense affection that must be demonstrated. Agape must be demonstrated. It's loyal, it's endless, it's unconditional commitment. Feelings are attached to this love, but it's not abstract. The word is devoted to demonstrating the inward feelings of love toward others with acts of kindness and benevolence. It's a very active love. Huba and agape are both very active. And the words used in 1 Corinthians 13, when it says love keeps no record of wrongs, you could say in the Aramaic, it's also saying love is not resentful. Love does not keep score. But more than that, in Aramaic, it can be translated to love does not stare at evil. Isn't that just poetic and beautiful? Love doesn't stare at evil. It looks away. It overlooks offenses, and it remains focused on what is good, refusing to hold resentment in our hearts. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says, but love will last forever, right? We know these phrases like the back of our hands, and yet in another way, you can say love never, not even once, fails or lapses. Love never falls down. It keeps going higher. And the action phrases in the chapter that I'm about to read to you, 
struck me this week as I'm preparing for the couch potato and just how much work it takes, love takes work. I started to notice all of these action phrases just started popping out at me. Love refuses to be jealous. It joyfully celebrates. It never stops believing. Never takes failure as defeat. It never gives up. It never stops loving. It extends beyond prophecy. It's more enduring than tongues, and it remains long after words of knowledge are forgotten. If I were to speak with eloquence in earth's many languages and in the heavenly tongues of angels, yet I didn't express myself with love, my words would be reduced to the hollow sound of nothing more than a clanging cymbal. And if I were to have the gift of prophecy with profound understanding of God's hidden secrets. Can you imagine having profound understanding of God's hidden secrets? And if I possessed unending supernatural knowledge, unending, unending supernatural knowledge, and if I had the greatest gift of faith that could move mountains, but have never learned to love, then I am nothing. And if I were to be so generous as to give away everything I owned to feed the poor and to offer my body to be burned as a martyr without the pure motive of love, I would gain nothing of value. This is probably my favorite part. Love is large and incredibly patient. Love is large. Large enough that it leaves no room for anything else, right? Love is large enough that it pushes out resentment pain, unforgiveness, and fear. Love is large and incredibly patient. Love is gentle and consistently kind to all. It refuses to be jealous when blessing comes to someone else. Love does not brag about one's achievements nor inflate its own importance. Love does not traffic in shame and disrespect nor selfishly seek its own honor. Love is not easily irritated or quick to take offense. Love joyfully celebrates honesty and finds no delight in what is wrong. Love is a safe place of shelter, for it never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure as defeat, for it never gives up. Love never stops loving. It extends beyond the gift of prophecy, which eventually fades away. It is more enduring than tongues, which will one day fall silent. Love remains long after words of knowledge are forgotten. Our present knowledge and our prophecies are but partial. But when love's perfection arrives, the partial will fade away. When I was a child, I spoke about childish matters, for I saw things like a child and reasoned like a child. But the day came when I matured. And I set aside my childish ways. For now we see but a faint reflection of riddles and mysteries as though reflected in a mirror. But one day we will see face to face. My understanding is incomplete now. But one day I will understand everything, just as everything about me has been fully understood. Isn't it good to be understood by our Father God? Until then, there are three things that remain. Faith, hope, and love. Yet love surpasses them all. But above all else, let love be the beautiful prize for which you run. Let love be the beautiful prize 
for which you run. I think we often think that love is the fuel that we run with rather than the prize to run for. That we're pursuing love ultimately. Not heaven, not salvation. Love. Love for God and love for people. We can't afford to be too fat or too thin on our spirituality. We can't afford being lopsided Christians who only care about learning or only care about serving. We must love God and love people. These are the greatest commandments. The couch potato Christian is an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. The couch potato Christian will eventually become good to no one, which doesn't make sense. That Christians should be the most useful people on planet Earth. We are called to be salt and light to the world, to love them, to be a safe place of shelter for them. That's our calling. If we're no good for that, we're probably sitting on the couch, either spiritually or physically. The couch potato Christian is a Christian without love, and it doesn't make sense because love puts work in. Love requires you to get off the couch. God is love. He doesn't have love or give love. He is it. He can't help but be anything else. It's who he is. It's why he sent his son. He loved us first. All we have to do is reflect that love like the moon reflects the sun onto other people. We just reflect his love. I hope that people, when they see me, they see his love reflected through me, not me and all my flaws and failures, my unforgiveness, my bitterness, my fear. Just Jesus reflected through me because if God hadn't sent Jesus for heaven, from heaven to live in this unpredictable, messed up, imperfect world, to be slaughtered for me, where would I be? He did it first. His love compels ours, and it should spill out of us onto the people around us. Because God is real. God is good. And he loved us so, so much that he sent his one and only son to die so we could be free. Some of us today, we are feeling like that spotlight is right on us, like we're real convicted because we showed up today with our highlighter and our our notebook, but we haven't signed up to serve anywhere. Um, First of all, I want to tell you, I'm not thinking about you when I presented this, okay? There's a lot of different ways to serve. It doesn't have to be holding babies in the back or pushing buttons in the booth or, or making coffee. Some people give abundantly. They make extra, they have more than they need, and they fund the church. They keep the lights on around here so the rest of us can learn, and that's how they serve. Some of us are bringers. We serve the church by bringing the world to the church. You're growing the church, and you can't quite commit to holding babies in the back because what if somebody from work that you invited and and they said they were coming, what if they show up to that service and I need to sit with them, right? 
they're bringers and they're serving the church by bringing people to it. There's lots of different ways to love people. I don't necessarily mean you got to sign up to be an usher or a baby holder in the back to love people. Although I do think you should give in to the church that's feeding you somehow, some way, find a way. God has put within you gifts and talents, purposes and callings that he's given you from birth before that, the word says. He knew you before you were formed in the womb. He already created you with gifts and talents. He's just asking you to use the gifts that he's given. And when you do, when you step out in faith, you will not only multiply it in fruit in your own life, but we all get the blessings of it too. In fact, I believe that serving people in general, but also mostly in church, it serves you. But the church is also not complete without your gifts and talents. So we're suffering when you don't use your gifts and talents in the body of Christ. We are all missing something because you're not using your gifts and talents, your God-given purposes and callings. We're suffering. I believe there are more of you in this room probably that are, let's say, I, I serve too much. I don't pause to take in for me. I don't take breaks when I'm feeling tired. I don't sit on the front row and worship my heart out one service a month, even though the rest of them I need to be working somewhere, doing something. I'm working myself to death. I'm starving myself spiritually because I'm so busy serving others. And again, follow that conviction. I, I don't mean to, to shine a spotlight on you, but really pursue God. I don't mean go quit all of your responsibilities. Say, God, what do you want me to do? How can I get the rest and, and food spiritually that I need? Do I need to give some stuff up or do I just need to be more intentional with my time? How can I serve you and serve people the best? So, Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Thank you that it's useful to teach us and correct us. Thank you that the Bible is one giant collection of love stories from you to us. We can see example after example of ways that you have chosen to love imperfect, messed up people and to work through them, to demonstrate your love. Thank you, God, for doing it first, for doing it so much better than we could ever. But God, teach us how. Show us how to love you and love people better than we ever have before. God, I pray for the people feeling compelled or maybe convicted to do something with this word. Send us out today motivated, inspired, ready to love the world like we never have before and to give you our all, to allow our love for God to consume us every part of us, all of our strength, all of our energy, every thought and every passion. Consume us, God, with fiery, burning love that we have to demonstrate to our world. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links. Hey everybody, welcome to Home Groups, where we apply the message we heard this weekend at FV Church. And we're starting a new semester here of Home Groups, which means maybe there's some new people in the group, maybe this is your first time ever in a home group, and that's awesome, we're so excited for you. And we wanna talk a little bit about what that's gonna be like. Yeah, these first couple of weeks will be fun. You'll get to know each other, you'll get to share a little bit about your lives and that sort of thing, but then we launch into couch potato stuff. We're going to get into sermon series and, and really how to apply the message from the weekend. These groups are really about first getting to know each other, sharing life together, and then the most important part, mm-hmm. applying the message together. Because if we just hear it on the weekend and go throughout our lives, we are couch potato Christians. We are not individuals who are actively living the life Jesus called us to live. And that's what home groups are about. Maybe you're watching this video sitting on a couch next to someone in a home group. Don't have couch potato faith. If you're in a home group, you need to actively take charge of your faith and you need to call each other up to new levels. That's what it means to be a Christian. Yeah, home groups are about building relationships and having fun, but the bigger piece of it really is growing spiritually and there's some work that it takes to get there. You have to challenge yourself a little bit. Come to services with a notebook and a pen, ready to take notes and then bring that notebook back along to home groups to talk about with people, to learn how to apply it to your life together. So today, let's spend some time asking each other some icebreaker questions, letting each other know what the summer's been like, if you're all all the same group. And then after that, let's set some goals. What do you wanna get out of this home group semester and how are you going to go about it? And someone in the group or everyone in the group should be writing these things down so that you can remember them and hold each other accountable to them. Yeah, should be a great discussion, guys. Have a lot of fun. We'll see you next week.